If you are uh, just joining us live or you are joining us on Catch Up on Sermon Audio or Facebook, YouTube or you're listening on Spotify, whatever it might be, we welcome you. We welcome you whatever country you are in and of course and a special welcome to the to the congregation at New Road. God bless you all. And we're going to read from Mark, where we're up to in Mark, it's chapter 14, and it's verses 12 to 21 today. Mark 14, verses 12 to 21, goes as follows. And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Jesus, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him, and wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the good man of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. And his disciples went forth and came into the city, and found as he had said unto them. And they made ready the Passover, and in the evening he cometh with the twelve. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. So we're talking today about betrayal and it was a betrayal that was ordained by God. So our observation in Jesus's ministry now sees this which is his final gathering with his uh, disciples during his earthly ministry and it's Passover time and so for each each group of people each group of uh, Jews in Jerusalem a lamb would be killed and in continue continuation of the that ancient practice the lamb will then be cooked and eaten and the disciples ask therefore where they can go and eat this Passover meal now you remember no doubt they stayed regularly in uh, Bethany in the house of Mary but the Passover meal had to take place within the the boundaries of the city of Jerusalem. Now this this festival attracted tens of thousands of pilgrims and so the locals would be expected to open up their houses to help accommodate this big influx of people. So Jesus sends out two disciples on an errand. Uh, to find a place he'd already chosen you can see that in verse um, verse 13 to 15 and it, this might remind you of a, a similar uh, task 
when Jesus sent two of his disciples to bring him a colt, uh, a donkey, he wanted to ride into Jerusalem on. And we considered then whether Jesus had made prior arrangements or it was more a case of Jesus exercising his power and foreknowledge. And so the same sort of discussion will take place with this incident. But there are some clues which would lead us to believe this was indeed a direct use of Jesus' ability to do the miraculous. Well, for example, the disciples are told to look for a man carrying a container of water. But that job was normally done by women. So some will then say, okay, well, maybe Jesus arranged for a man to be carrying a water so that it would be more recognisable by the disciples. But the problem with that idea is there could well have been more than 150,000 people in and around Jerusalem at that time. There's no way the disciples would have spotted this one man apart from some uh, miraculous encounter. So that doesn't sound like a good plan. By the way, you may want to read, look in First uh, Samuel, the 10th chapter, and you will see there uh, an even more elaborate uh, prediction of this kind, uh, which occurred exactly as, as was said. Well, both uh, this one and the story in chapter 11 with the with the donkey and going into Jerusalem it they they show the the circumstances happening precisely the way Jesus said they would i think we're meant to see a likeness between the two uh, there were two disciples in each uh, there's also a phrase uh, 11 words long that appears exactly word for word the same in each account just to help us to spot a connection and well even in Jesus's final hours now on earth he might appear to some to have lost control but here he gives us again these indications that all things are falling out according to God's purposes there may be a bit more to this this uh, arrangement in the city there may be a bit more than just a show of his divine nature because if he just gave the disciples an address to go to then Judas was there he, he, he'd hear it he'd make a mental note of the address and then he, he could go and tell the authorities and they'd just go and raid the place and you know, Jesus needs to have this final meal with his disciples because he has some important things to say. He's going to announce his betrayal and send the betrayer on his mission. Uh, and he's also going to institute something very important, which we'll look at maybe next week, which is the the introduction of the, the what we call the Holy Communion or the Lord's Table commemoration. You know, I was thinking that it's commonly, when we think of the Last Supper, for a start, where I come from, supper means something you have before you go to bed. But apparently, in some areas, even of my own country, 
supper is something you have like in Scotland some supper is just what you have at you know around 6 p.m. or 5 p.m. or 7 it's what I call tea and others call dinner but this was the last meal the last Passover meal but it's called yeah it's called the last supper reminded me of that painting by Leonardo da Vinci you have Jesus with his long hair Anyway, you have Jesus in the centre, and you have all the disciples along this bench, all sitting. And and that that that's that that painting is inaccurate in many ways. But one of them, one of the ways it's inaccurate is that's not how they ate. They ate around. Um, they sat. They they they, they were around the eating area with with um, with couches, and they would recline on couches while they were eating. That room, by the way, some people think that room has survived. There's a room, there's a room in Jerusalem t- today, and, and of course, it's very convenient for it to have survived because it attracts tens of thousands of visitors every year, and it's been turned into something of a shrine. I, I, I if you're thinking of, you know, thinking of going, I wouldn't pack your bags just yet. I mean, I. As fascinating as it would be to stand in that very room, I mean, how powerful would that be? It just, we're just natural idolaters, and we we just, we'd start to, we yeah, what they've done, turn it into a shrine, and have people go and probably want to touch the walls to try and get some blessing or all of that. Um, I remember, you know, Moses was commanded to make a, a brass snake, and it was you, it was that was commanded by God. But when it had fulfilled its purpose, he was told to destroy it. Already, there were people who were, were wanting to turn it into an idol to, to, to worship. I suspect God had this room destroyed by the Romans. So, these two disciples are sent ahead to prepare this banquet, and you'll notice the owner of the the owner of the uh, property. He clearly knew who the teacher was. They just said the teacher wants to know, you know, is can he have his room, <laughs> and and so the, the the guy makes the place ready, and may, maybe he was asked to cook the Passover meal as well for them. Okay, so let's have a little look at what Jesus said. Well, there's not much mention of the Passover meal itself. I mean, Mark, it seems, doesn't want to have his readers distracted by those details. And so he fast-forwards to later on in the meal. Then comes this announcement. Jesus says, One of you, eating with me right now, is going to betray me. One of those close to him. One of his friends. These people had been in company with him almost daily for the best part of three years. And you'll see in verse 19, they each asked if it was them who was the betrayer. Is it I? Is it I? I mean, that's an accurate translation, is it I? But it it doesn't convey the right sense because... They were asking the question with the full expectation they'd receive a reassuring answer from Jesus saying, 
don't worry, it's not you. So we, we might prefer to paraphrase what they said like this. Surely it's not me, is it? So although it appears as if each was panicking about that it, you know that it could be one of them, their attitude was rather one of confidence that it wasn't one of them. In the next uh, couple of weeks, we are going to witness this gang of loyalists abandoning Jesus by running away. But think on this. The real time between their confident assertions they'd never abandoned Jesus and their running away was just a few hours The betrayal and abandonment of Jesus would take place that night. I said a moment ago, Jesus had displayed some of his divine power when he engineered that errand. He sent the two disciples on. But we know Jesus was fully man too. And when John wrote his account of this last meal... He included a, a relatively minor but sad point. It says Jesus was troubled. It says Jesus was troubled within. He was clearly getting nervous and worried at the prospect of what he'd have to face in his final day on earth. So there was this announcement and then we're going to look at another aspect now. So <clears throat> we're going to have a look at these two aspects of this betrayal by Jesus. And Our passage shows us this betrayal was ordained by God, even though it was carried out by Judas. Now several times up to this point, Jesus had clearly told his disciples he was going to be killed. He didn't present it as a risk that they might encounter, but as a certainty. And all the lesser prophets who went before Jesus described what was going to happen centuries later. Here's one from Isaiah. Surely, this is Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53, yeah, and verse 4. And Isaiah, notice, he speaks there. Let me put that back. Surely he has borne our griefs. We did esteem him struck down. He's speaking in the past tense there. And I think it might be a way to emphasise the certainty of the death of this victim, the Messiah. And he tells us the Messiah is going to be smitten. That, that means something completely different today. It means hit. The Messiah is going to be hit by God. The God of heaven would inwardly beat Jesus, if you like. And whatever these eternal batterings were that were due to us as sinners, they were all redirected onto the soul of our Saviour. And he did this for the whole multitude of his elect people. We also see uh, Daniel speaking about the striking down of the Messiah 
and the end of the temple age. Daniel 9, 26. <clears throat> and after three score and two weeks, is that uh, 62 weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And this cutting off of the Messiah with all the treachery and loneliness and criminality involved was performed according to the wise and sovereign will of God. The reason God ordained this is because it was necessary. Think about yourself, friend. Think about your own situation. Think about the innumerable number of sins you've you've committed in your life regardless of the you know whether they were big or small they were each offenses against the highest law that there is a standard so perfect that the slightest fault in keeping it brings the death sentence these are the rules in God's universe you have to die not a painless snuffing out, not several life sentences lasting maybe a few hundred years. The weight of your offences was so great, your punishment would have to go on and on without end. But then we come to God's election. As I prayed earlier, he chose to create a way to save some of the human race. Now in in false religions like Islam we find God being merciful to some and forgiving their sin now it, it's it's obvious in, in so many ways Muhammad didn't spend too long thinking you know putting thought into this new religion he was inventing because his God Allah is he forgives people by putting aside his own justice. Now, I, I put this point to a group of Muslims uh, one day, and you know, maybe, perhaps, it gave them something to think about. The truth is, God cannot simply show mercy in that way. If he determines to show mercy, it cannot be at the expense of his justice. In other words, someone still has to die. His justice allows him to, to carry out the punishment due to you and me on another. But who? Well, the judge can't very well pick some other human to take your place. I mean, that just destroys the picture of mercy. And, you know, there's this innocent third party suffering for all eternity. That's hardly mercy. The only way around it is for the judge himself to take the punishment. And our Lord Jesus Christ, the judge of all mankind, did exactly that. For this and other reasons, it was essential that Messiah would be killed in place of his people. In one of his open-air preaching sessions, the Apostle Paul spoke of this necessity in Acts 17 verses 2 and 3 and Paul as his manner was went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures opening and alleging that 
Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach to you is Christ, is Messiah. Were it not for this incredible provision, brethren, every one of us would share an eternity of sorrow together. And this is the fate of many. We point friends and relatives, you know, to an escape route. And they ignore us. They prefer to try to find some flaw in us that would, in their minds, make us the same as them. They prefer to trust in the majority. Or they assume that these godless scientists must be right. And when they all go to that place together with all their scientist friends, they won't even have the comfort of each other's company as consolation. They're never getting out of that prison. So there's no light at the end of the tunnel to comfort them. All that faces them is a sad, lonely existence. And all, all those moments they rejected the gospel from us will haunt them forever. That's why we pray so earnestly for them. Well, we've spoken about God being behind all these things and about the necessity of the um, atonement. So, even the betrayal, you see, and although God's in control, in a mystery of God's, the guilt of the act is still with Judas. So if the atonement was necessary, then all the events which led to it were also necessary. Listen to what Jesus himself says as he prays one day to his Father in heaven. John seventeen twelve. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled the treacherous departure of Judas from the company was just another necessary component in the machine that was God's salvation yet it should be obvious to, to you that from reading this passage Judas was not forced into this act against his will had he not wanted to betray Jesus but found himself being forced into doing so by an almighty God he couldn't have rightly been held accountable for his act all that he did was in accordance with his own will at that time and God rightly holds him guilty now we said last time Judas had a real lust for money you remember when that expensive perfume oil was used all used up on, on Jesus Judas had no thoughts apart from monetary ones even after Jesus had explained why what the women that that woman did was was good all Judas could think about was the money he could have made in verse 21 it says 
the Son of Man will be taken just as it was written, but the betrayer is still responsible for his actions. And we could extend that to our own situation. From a theological viewpoint, we could say the sins we've committed were part of God's ordaining actions, but the fault lies with us. The folks at New Road uh, looked at this mysterious truth recently in our midweek Bible study. You'll read elsewhere that it was, uh, elsewhere in the Gospels, it said that Satan entered Judas. Jesus at one point even said Judas was a devil. Yet, even if we factor in this influence uh, of Satan on Judas, it still doesn't remove one iota of guilt. When Judas takes his turn to stand in the dock in the courtroom of God with his former friend as judge, he can try all the defences he wants. None of them will work. His act of betrayal, just like the multitude of other sins he's committed in his life, was carried out with his whole heart and the Lord will declare him guilty on all points what makes this really you know tragic especially is it was done by someone who claimed to be a friend of Jesus now many Christians can testify that they can take all manner of abuse from this world but when a friend has turned on them it was a terrible experience If you've ever had a friend, but especially a Christian friend, turn on you unexpectedly, you'll understand that sort of pain. It's similar to if you're married, your, your spouse cheating on you. You, 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 will, you. you would think through all the many good times you had with them. And, and you do the same with the friends. You think about all the times you had with this friend recently and the memory of every single one will from then on be tainted with the thought that they were insincere. In one of those psalms which speak about the Saviour, we read this. Psalm 41 and verse 9. A prophecy, really. Yea, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lift up his heel against me has opposed me my own friend in whom I trusted who I ate with wanted to turn on me and stomp on me and to heighten the seriousness of this treachery the thoughts of it would come to head during a meal most Christians I know love uh, eating together I do more than anyone else it's a wonderful experience to, to, to share that and I also love barbecues <laughs> so if you have a barbecue you, you should invite me and we know it's just as common in the world isn't it so we find our we find our family and friends enjoy eating together it's 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 a fun time it's part of human nature to enjoy the social interaction and and I suppose the sharing of food uh, accentuates the the, the, the sociable aspect of it. In, in the ancient 
Semitic society Jesus and his disciples lived in, eating together was even more important, dare I say. It was one of the real clear indications of friendship. So for a betrayal to have its culmination in this expression of comradeship was a specially despicable and without naming him Jesus pronounces uh, a condemnation on the one who would betray him woe to that man he says woe to that man I think we get a feeling of what woe means but we might not be able to define it the word can mean horror and that's as good as any Jesus was promising that pure horror was coming Judas's way We've seen how, in just one act, God's uh, sovereignty and man's responsibility for his own sin is seen. And we can study this truth all we want, and we can draw up sophisticated explanations for how this can be. We can debate it for the next thousand years. I personally love talking about this, trying to understand it just a tiny bit more. That's great. As long as we continue to believe it, as long as we never allow our tiny, finite intelligences to conclude either that God is not behind evils like this, or that the perpetrator is not fully responsible. As we think about this meal, we see the great irony, the Passover lamb is being eaten by the true Lamb of God that it pictured. And this was not only the last time Jesus would eat the Passover, this would mark the end of the Passover for all time. Now we know Jews to this day celebrate a kind of Passover, but all the important elements are not there. And it's the same with some Christians. Some Christians celebrate the Passover. And uh, friends of mine who do celebrate it, I've talked to them in depth about it. And it's a, it's a way of introducing some, you know, old tradition from the Bible into their own circumstance. And it's, it's trying to, it's making a connection and it can be, it can be interesting just like we like to go to museums so we can see artifacts from the past because it has a sort of uh, provides us with a sort of connection with the past and that's okay we, we, we trust that they're doing it for those reasons they're not they're not doing this in any other religious way uh, to um, in expecting an expectation of a savior course well the Passover lamb had come and he was slaughtered and although we don't eat his flesh literally as the papists claim we nevertheless feed on him by faith now if you're not a believer that might sound a bit strange it just means by trusting in Jesus day by day it's like we're eating that Passover lamb and receiving all the benefits of it. Let's, re- let's just read one more thing from Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 53 verses 7 and 8. 
says. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. He was struck down out of the land of the living for the transgressions, the sins of his people. Who are his people? All those who at some point in their lives surrender their whole lives to Jesus Christ. You who are believers, is it any surprised that any surprise we're told to take part in this Lord's table ritual frequently? Jesus himself tells us this holy communion service will remind us of what the core of the gospel is. Someone died. The Son of Man died. And he did that 2,000 years ago. So that you believers watching today can enjoy all the benefits of salvation. And those who are not yet believers, maybe believe in God, maybe believe Jesus died on a cross, maybe believe he rose again. But they're not saved. They only have to go to God in prayer, repenting of their sins, and being willing to accept Jesus as that great Passover lamb who was killed in the place of others such love now may God's grace go with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity Amen well another another service done and I hope that God's word will really get into your hearts today and change you change you today and in the days to come I pray you will continue to devote yourselves devote some time each day to reading God's word and approaching God in prayer I shall see you DV same time next week bye now